I'm going to be bringing the Bible reading to you all this morning. Uh, we have two passages, one very short verse from John chapter 6, that's verse 63, and another passage from 1 Corinthians 2, verses 13 to 16. We'll start in John. John 6, 63. The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. And from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, it says, This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Thank you, Krista. Thank you, Jonathan, wherever you are. <laughs> I want to encourage you, WDBC, if one of your leaders is not ashamed to get on his knees in front of you, neither should you be ashamed. We come to the message this morning and we are asking this question, what is the church? And we've been in this series for some time. Uh, we're looking thematically through the Bible to understand what God says about us as his church. And this week, if you can see that little blue section there, sorry, I haven't filled in all the details, you'll see that we're talking again about what it means to be witnesses to God. Last week, we looked at who the church was born of the Spirit to be, and we saw that we were born to be witnesses to God, and we looked specifically how the Spirit enables us to bear witness. From Acts 3 and 4, we saw that through the Spirit, we are enabled to continue ministering in the name of Jesus, in power and in healing and release. We saw that the Spirit enables us to proclaim boldly the gospel of Jesus, and we saw that the Spirit enables us to suffer courageously for the exaltation of Jesus. So if last week we saw how we are empowered to be witnesses, today we're going to look at what we are testifying to. What are we witnesses of? I said last week, welcome to the fellowship of the spirit born. I say that to you again. This is the gathering of those that the spirit has given new life in Jesus Christ. And that is the basis of our unity here today. And our big question this morning is, to what does the spirit witness through us? To what? does the witness spirit through us. If we are witnesses to God and think of yourself in a courtroom in a testimony setting, what is the spirit testifying to? That's the question we wanna try and answer today. Our big idea is behind me. 
And it shows on the screen there that the Spirit, the Spirit is bearing witness to Christ through us, testifies, it exalts him. So, as we look this morning, I suggest to you that four prominent themes emerge when considering through the New Testament what the church is to testify to. Again, we're asking the question, to what does the Spirit bear witness through the church? And I want to suggest to you this morning, and this is not exhaustive, but this is just what the Lord put on my heart, uh, that no less than four things is the Spirit testifying to through us. Through us, the Spirit is bearing witness to the Son of God, to the life of God, to the wisdom of God, and to the mercy of God. And this will be our outline for this morning. The Spirit, through us, is bearing witness to the Son of God, to the life of God, to the wisdom of God, and to the mercy of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you and ask that through your spirit, as we read, that we would be given words to understand spiritual reality. That as my brother prayed, that we would see ourselves as you see us, that we would have your eyes, that we would know the mind of Christ. Not that we would exalt ourselves, but that we would humble ourselves before you and walk in ways that are worthy of you because we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the first, the first theme that emerges from the scriptures when we ask what is the spirit bearing witness to through us and that is first of all to identify the son of God, to identify God's son. And I encourage you on your Bible, and you can do this now, it takes less time than it did maybe 10, 15 years ago. Uh, for those of you who are still thumbing through like me, you can turn to Acts chapter 17. And in here, briefly, we see two examples. What I want you to note here is what Paul is speaking to and what he's testifying to. In verses two and three of Acts chapter 17, we read that as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue. He's in Thessalonica. He went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. And then Luke gives us the summary of his sermon. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. So here Paul to the Jews understands that his role as an apostle, as a disciple, as a Christian, is to identify who God's Messiah is. And to the Jews, he uses the revelation that God has provided to them throughout the history of their people. And he makes the identification that this Jesus is the Messiah, the one that was crucified. He has risen. He is reigning. Notice that his message is tailored when he speaks to the Gentiles later in this chapter. Look with me, if you will, at verses 30 and 31. <clears throat> Oops, that's two and three. Here we go, 30 and 31. Paul is speaking to a group of Gentiles in Athens 
And he says, after he told them that he'd been making a journey all around the city and he found an altar to an unknown God, he said, I'm going to tell you who that unknown God is that you're wondering about. And he goes on to say that God's not very far from them after all, but he has appointed a day, this same God, in the past though he's overlooked this ignorance, he has set a day when he's going to judge the world. There we go. Ah, this is off again. That's what's going on. Note to whoever, we need to fix that. <laughs> I'm looking at this, but you're one, you're one behind me. Okay, there we go. Now I know what's going on. See, that's why I gave you a copy back there, Dan. That's not Dan's fault, by the way. Dan, Dan's doing a great job. Um, uh, Paul is in Athens and he says to them, in the past God overlooked such, such ignorance, excuse me, in verse 30, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So God understood that people didn't know him or recognize him in his fullness, but now things are changing. Verse 31 is the reason, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. So Paul's message turns very quickly from you don't really know who, who this God is to there's a day coming when you will be judged and he's appointed him through, he's demonstrated who he is, he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So what Paul is doing for Jew and for Gentile is he's making an identification that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is God's Messiah. That the Jesus who was crucified around about 33 AD in what is now Palestine, that, or Jerusalem, that Jesus, that Jesus is the risen Savior. He is coming again to judge. This is the identification that the Spirit of God is making. Brothers and sisters, we need to recognize that for us to be who we were born to be in the Spirit, that will mean we make a singular identification for people about the future about who God's son is. Whether Paul was talking to Jews or to Gentiles, he's still driving towards the same point. He's identifying that Jesus is not some, merely some, some teacher. He's not merely a victim. He's not merely a martyr. He's not somebody who, who, whose philosophies captivated people's ideas. No, he is the word made flesh, who dwelt among us, who was crucified for our sins, who rose on the third day, who has ascended through the power of the Spirit and is now reigning at the right hand of God in heaven. And the same God who exalted him and lifted him from the grave, that God is in the process of putting everything under his feet. And one day, that same Jesus will come again and when he comes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But right now, it is the church's job to make the identification. To be like John the Baptist and say, behold, the Lamb of God. There he is, that's him. This is so important. Don't miss this. Don't take this for granted. Why? Because Paul would tell us that the cross, the message of the cross is foolishness to the world. And it's a stumbling block to Jews. This is 
critical information. Your thoughts on some random extrapolation of Christian morality and ethics in our world today is not as critical as the identification of Jesus Christ as God's Messiah. Your views and your values and your working out in your own particular life, even how you feel now that you've come to know Jesus is not as critical as the information of who Jesus is. And you need to realize that the Spirit will be leading you to make that identification. And the enemy has been working overtime in the last few decades to remove from our minds the realm that anyone is allowed to say anything definitive about anything. But this is a definitive statement. And, that I, and the Spirit of God is going through the church to make the identification that Jesus is God's Messiah. We can't punt on this. We can't leave it to the side. We can't back away and say, oh, well, they'll figure it out. We can't say, well, Jesus is one of many ways. We can't say, well, this works for me. No. No. We must make the identification. And notice, notice that in doing this, there is an implicit call for repentance. You see, many of us say, well, I don't want to make the identification because the moment I make the identification and I say Jesus is the king of the universe, he's God's king, well, then they'll, then they'll feel like they need, to, they need to listen to him. Yes. That's the point. Well, you see, but, but that's not their religion. Who cares what their religion is? It doesn't even matter what my religion is as long as it reconciles with the fact that Jesus is God's Messiah. Paul would say, if an angel from heaven shows up and preaches a gospel that changes that fact, don't listen to it. Let that person be accursed. This is critical information. This is the first semblance of our witness in the spirit. The second is we witness to the life of God. And, and this begs the question of who would, who would actually believe this? And many of us say, who would actually believe that, that, that the, the Jesus who was dead and buried and risen is, is actually the Messiah? How does this even happen? Well, our second theme explains a lot of why this can actually happen. Through the Spirit, the church testifies to the life of God. And I'm showing you two different places here, and this is the reading from this morning. In John chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus says these words. He says, the flesh counts for nothing, but the words I've spoken to you, they are spirit and life. They are spirit and life. What is Jesus saying here? He's echoing a thought similar to what God told to Moses when he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God's mouth. When Jesus speaks, he conveys spiritual realities to people. This is what the woman at the well discovered. Her testimony was, he knew everything I ever did. That doesn't really sound as exciting as Iris' testimony. 
Frankly, Iris' testimony sounded really exciting. The woman at the well said, he just knew everything about me. What was it about that? Because Jesus was speaking to her words that were spirit and truth, spirit and life. When Jesus appears on the scene, we see him speaking. We see him speaking to people and the remark that is given to his preaching ministry is that he spoke with authority. He spoke with authority. When Jesus speaks with authority, he is speaking with authority not simply because his words are truthful. You see, there's a certain measure of authority that comes with somebody who can tell the truth. When someone who is known to be honest and forthright, who doesn't hedge or shade facts, when that person speaks, you listen to that person because they call it as they see it. They speak truth. There's a measure of authority in speaking truth. But it's not simply that Jesus taught with authority. It's not simply that he taught truthfully that made his words authoritative. What made his words authoritative was the person of who he was. In Genesis chapter one, we learn about the creation. And until God breathed into men and women the breath of life, we were simply a mass of tissue and bone and sinew. But when God breathed into the first man and the first woman, we became a living being. And in a similar way, Jesus would breathe on his disciples the Holy Spirit and things would change. When Jesus spoke his words, this is the same God who said, let there be light and there was light. The same utterance that divided the seashore from the depths of the ocean. That same vocalization, that same utterance is the same one who's speaking to this woman at a well. And so when the Spirit is speaking through Jesus' words, life seems to be reborn. It seems to be created. And the same thing carries through for the church. Jesus spoke with authority, not just because his words were true, but because the life-giving spirit was in him, because of who he was. And now for the church, he gives us that spirit. He imparts that spirit As I challenged you last week, go through the book of Acts, go through the New Testament and watch how often the Spirit comes upon somebody. You can even look in the Old Testament. When the Spirit comes upon somebody, they speak, they prophesy, they foretell, foretell. Before some of you get all hung up on, you know, predicting the future, this is not about predicting the future, it's about declaring the word of the Lord, whether that's past, present, or future. When Jesus spoke... There was life and power in his words. It testified to a reality that was greater. Did this happen for you? Do you remember? Do you remember when Jesus' words began to stir your heart? When you heard the gospel, when these spiritual realities began to be explained to you and, and, and as you, you heard them, you felt, in the words of one of the Wesley brothers, your heart was strangely warmed. 
You began to breathe again. You began to, you began to see. You, 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 you began to look, look at things in a different per perspective. It's because the word of Jesus imparts life. as communicated through the Spirit. Jesus would tell that same woman at the well, he said, God is looking for worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. These are people who grab hold of the reality that God is communicating, of the transcendent reality beyond simply what we see, not dismissing what we see as somehow, somehow unimportant, but, but what communicates the heart and the character and the nature and the plan and the power of God. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Do you hear this? Paul's praising the Thessalonians because he says, when we spoke to you, you heard God. And in fact, the same message that you heard, it's actually still working in you. It's still doing something in you. As a church, Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, we don't talk in human wisdom. He would say a, a, a few chapters earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, God has chosen through the foolishness of what was preached to bring many people. Paul goes to town with the same message week after week of a crucified Messiah and people are changed. Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 17, Paul, Paul writes, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on one, the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless anyone is sent? There is something that happens in the proclamation of the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The Spirit is bearing witness to the life of God. He's speaking and explaining spiritual realities through Spirit-taught words. Not everyone's gonna see it, but some will. God's doing that through you. You ever met a Christian and you said, you know, there's just something, you ever had somebody come up to you and maybe they just said, you know, there's just, I can't tell what it is. There's just something in this room I remember, Teresa, I'm going to call you out. Before she was a believer, she came up to me and she said, I heard you talk at that wedding. She said, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it was about you. I can't remember exactly what she said, but all I know is there's substance in that. There's life in that. The Spirit is bearing witness to you, not only to make an identification, but to communicate and to show the reality of spiritual things, the reality of the spiritual world, the reality of life beyond what we can just perceive with our eyes. If the presence of the Spirit in our lives communicates the life of God to other people, what about the truth of God? What does our testimony reveal about the truth of the gospel? And now we look thirdly, and we see that through the Spirit, and I'm gonna ask Dan to jump ahead because I've totally lost my place, thank you. The Spirit 
bears witness through us to show God's wisdom. Our testimony reveals God's mystery hidden in the ages past, but now made known. If you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter three. Ephesians chapter three, we'll just look briefly. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter three, verse seven, I became a servant of this gospel by the grace given me. Notice Paul says he's a servant of a message. I become a servant of this gospel by the gift of grace God given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach. To preach. To preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. And to make plain to everyone the administration, that means the, 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 the organization, how, how it all fits together, the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Paul realizes that he's been instructed with a key that unlocks a lot of things. In fact, the whole plan and purpose of all of creation is unlocked in this gospel message that he was graciously given to preach. Look with me at verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, ours is the privilege through the Spirit to herald for the world that God's plan of redemption has come to pass. That's our privilege. Jesus briefed his disciples on what the Spirit would be testifying to us. Excuse me, what would the Spirit would be testifying to through us? In John chapter 16, verses 8 to 11, Jesus says, When he, that is the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong or to convict the world. He will convict the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Here Jesus is telling his disciples plainly of the Spirit's role in announcing the Father's plan of redemption. On earth, the Spirit resides in Christ's church. In this way, we, the fellowship of the spirit born, can rightly be called, as Paul would say in 1 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, the pillar of truth. The church is the pillar of truth. We uphold it. We exalt it. Paul says the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. And he gives this wonderful summary of the gospel. He appeared in the flesh. He was vindicated by the spirit. He was seen by angels. He was preached among the nations. He was believed on in the world and he was taken up into glory. The church has a responsibility to communicate this mystery. You say, I don't know what's mysterious about that. What's mysterious about that? Well, there's lots of mysteries in there. First of all, how is a holy God going to redeem his sinful image bearers? 
How is God who chose one particular nation, one particular race out of all the races of the world to show his grace to, how is he going to somehow extend that grace and mercy to those who were not of that chosen nation? How was God's sovereign purposes and election going to stand with this same understanding of free will that we all have an obligation toward our creator? How is this all going to work out? How are the promises going to come to pass? The church has the answer to that mystery. We are the key. Paul would also go on to say in another place that the church adorns the doctrine of God. That means we make God's truth beautiful. What a high calling. To make the truth of God beautiful. We are not the truth, but we show it off, don't we? As a beautiful bride shows off the splendor, so we show off the splendor of the truth of God. The church uniquely declares God's wisdom because we embody God's mystery revealed in the gospel. I want to take you back to Ephesians chapter 3, and I'll reference again Lloyd-Jones' sermon called God's Great Design, preached some 60, 70 years ago. And of this plan that God's wisdom is seen in his ability to bring his purposes to pass, Lloyd-Jones writes this. He says, we, the church, are given here a portrayal of the church in her dignity and greatness and glory, which in a sense seems to surpass anything the apostle has said about her. Nothing surely can be higher than this. He goes on to point out an illustration that I found particularly helpful. He said, if the gospel, if the truth of God's, God's love and redemption in Christ is like a beam of light that is shining... The church is like a prism that is held up into that beam of light through which the glory of the light is refracted in a brilliant display of colors. I look around this room and I see a brilliant display of the colors of God's grace. I see people from all walks of life, people from all ages and stages, from different countries, different, different nationalities, different ethnic origins, different different family backgrounds. I look around this room and I just say, wow, God, your grace is magnificent. What do you see when you look at your brothers and sisters? But we don't just show off the wisdom of God to one another. Paul specifically says that the church, that it was God's intent that the church would show, would show the manifold wisdom, his manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. By which he most likely means here the angels. It's like, the angels are interested in us. Yes, absolutely. I need some proof of that, pastor. Okay, all right. Luke 15, verse 10. 
Jesus said there is more, more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who don't need to repent. How about the apostle Peter? When he's describing the prophetic witness and the value of retaining the witness, who tags on to the end of that, he says, even angels long to look into these things. There is a sense, people, that the heavenly host is peering down at the church and they are gobsmacked, hands on their head, looking and saying, God, you are amazing. We never thought you could be this wise. You say, what is it about his wisdom? You see, wisdom is not just, it's not just understanding something. Wisdom is the ability to bring your purposes into action. And the angels, knowing God is inherently loving and inherently good, but also knowing he is inherently just and he is altogether other and different and that no taint of sin can abide in his presence. Knowing all of this, they've been wondering. How's he going to do it? How's he going to do it? These people who've disgraced his name. These people who of all creation reflect his qualities, yet of all creation rebel against his very nature and core. How's he going to do it? And then one day, a teenage girl in Israel laid a baby in a box. And the angels couldn't help themselves. And they showed up on a hillside to some grubby shepherds. And I don't know who got to go first. I think it was Gabriel. But after he made the announcement, the whole host couldn't hide it. And they sang glory to God. And yet they still wondered, how's he gonna do it? We never thought he would descend. We never thought he would become like them. We never thought he would take on his flesh. What's he gonna do now? Surely he'll reform them. Surely he'll train them and he'll teach them. And I can just imagine them watching as Peter and James and John are walking with the word made flesh. And they're listening, they're eavesdropping on these conversations and they're thinking, they're not reforming. I don't know if they're gonna get it. And besides all this, what, what manner of sin? And we're told that that. The angels were not far away when Jesus is there, here in this realm, where the prince of the power of the air rules, being tempted by Satan himself, the accuser, being slandered by him, saying, if you're the son of God, prove it. And the angel's wondering, what's he gonna do? And I wonder what they thought when he was hung on the cross. as the devil and the demons gleefully thought they had finally done it. They'd finally overthrown, only to discover the pure wisdom of God 
that in, in their perceived moment of victory was their very undoing. Because in that one moment, God's love and his righteousness, his justice and his mercy met. And he proved once and for all that he is both loving and just. And he has opened the gate back into paradise. You see, church, we have the privilege of reflecting this wisdom. We have the privilege of, of, of announcing and proclaiming this. You might say, how do I do this? I refer you again to Lloyd-Jones. He says, the way to shine, <laughs> the way to shine is to meditate upon these things to look at them, to realize the truth about yourself as a part of the church, and then keep on meditating upon it and dedicate yourself to him daily. And then though through you, excuse me, and then through you, the light will shine in one of its variegated colors. Don't try to be all the colors, please. Some of you are blue and you're trying to be orange. Don't apologize for not being orange. Just be blue. And the angels will be filled with amazement at what they see in you. Now, brothers and sisters, thus far, we've seen that our testimony as the church is a means of identification. We identify who the Son is. It's a means of regeneration. God bringing his life to people, explaining spiritual realities, conveying that life through us. And we've seen that our testimony is a means of adoration. We, we, we bring glory, praise, and honor to God through who we are as the church, showing off his wisdom. And here, finally, we see that the scriptures present our testimony in the church as a matter of invitation, showing off the mercy of God. Our testimony, brothers and sisters, persuades sinners to accept God's invitation to receive his mercy in Christ. Paul, in trying to explain to the Corinthians his mission, he tells them that he doesn't look at the world the same way he used to before he knew Christ. In Christ, he says he has a right and a proper fear of the Lord. And I'm looking here at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 11 to 21, if you want to turn there. In Christ, he says he has a right and proper fear of the Lord so that he opens his mouth. But notice who Paul speaks for here. He speaks on behalf of God and he speaks for the sake of sinners. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and this will be the last place we turn today, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about the message of Christ and how it compels him. He says in verse 11, knowing what it is to fear the Lord, we persuade others. We persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we're giving an opportunity to take pride, you to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. And he gives us this great example. He says, if we're out of our mind, quote unquote, as some say, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. What a refreshing approach to communication. You see, contrary to our day and age, where we obsess about platforming and publishing, Paul here is content to make much of Jesus and to leave it at that. How stabilizing it is for ourselves and for others when we keep Christ in focus, when Christ is the focus of our message. 
Keeping Christ as our focus, our aim, our boast, our champion, our direction, our exaltation, our foundation, our goal, doing all of this, it will charge or infuse our message with a profound urgency as well as hope. And so we come to 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21. And I'll ask Dan to put it on the screen. Paul says in this famous passage, he says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is Paul's description of his ministry. This is what Paul makes his agenda. Do you hear these words? He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore God's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, Paul writes. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Friends, brothers and sisters, to carry Christ's message, we must have first received the message. To be an ambassador, we must have first come under the king's lordship. To be God's agents of appeal, we first must be sealed by his spirit. To implore for Christ befits one that adores Christ. And to cry out, be reconciled to any and all that might hear you remains the sole cry left of a freed heart that has found peace with God. In other words, we offer mercy because that's what we have received. Do you hear it? Whose message do you carry? Come on in, kids. Come on in. Come on in. We have missed you guys. Come on in. Find a seat. Find a seat. I got some great things to share with you. Kids, I've just been telling the adults, I've just been telling the adults that we can only give what we have first received. And so we ask, whose message are we carrying? Who do we represent in the world? What are we asking of the world? What are we trying to persuade them of? What, are we, what, what, what cry are we leaving upon their ears? It's been committed to us, brothers and sisters of Windsor District Baptist Church, to be witnesses of God's mercy. Grace is ours to offer on God's behalf. I want you to think of that privilege. Think of what it means to have grace to be received as you are. 
Mercy is waiting for the lost behind our invitation. Do you hear that? Mercy is waiting for the lost behind our invitation. You see, when we were lost, weighed down with doubt and discouragement, saddled with sin and shame, hemmed in on every side by fear here, guilt over there, we found mercy, didn't we? When we were blind, hopeless, rudderless, living lives devoid of purpose or meaning, when we were parched to the very core of our being, we found mercy, didn't we? When we were stuck, as some of you, I imagine, are stuck right now. When we were stuck, powerless to change, rushing from craving to craving, from depraved thought to perverse action, when we were caught in this spiral of death, we found mercy, didn't we? We found mercy when we heard that thought which seemed too good to be true, that mercy triumphed over judgment. We found mercy when we read that at just the right time, when we were powerless, Christ died for us. And we find mercy, don't we, when we're assured that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Mercy is waiting for the lost. We know this because mercy was waiting for us. We know this. Does your neighbor know this? Does your coworker, your boss, your landlord, your teammate, your PA, your accountant, your GP? Kids, have your parents told you that there's mercy for you? Does your spouse know this? How would they know? Who would tell them? We invite the band to come back up. Brothers and sisters, we see that the church is born to be witnesses of God. Today we've seen that through us, the Spirit communicates the identity of God's Son. He communicates the reality of God's life and he communicates the glory of God's wisdom and the availability of God's mercy. We were born again to testify to these truths. This is what the Spirit is pointing us to do. Will we stay in step with him?